Well, it is uh, great to have people to speak to for a change. I've, uh, for the last four months or so, I've been speaking to a camera. Cameras don't give much away when you talk to them. Um, they don't look happy, they don't look sad, they don't look interested, they don't look bored. Um, they don't say amen or hallelujah or praise the Lord, but none of you usually do that anyway. If you do that tonight, I won't, I won't be troubled at all. I'd love to hear some response for a change. Well, I'm going to pray and then we'll uh, have a look at this passage from Galatians 5. Loving Father, we, we pray that you would teach us how to walk in fellowship with you, in fruitful fellowship with you tonight, um, set our expectations and steal our wills to live for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a food trend that's been popular recently is fermentation. I don't know if many of you are into that sort of thing, but we've, at various points in the last few years, had things bubbling away in jars in our kitchen. We've uh, pickled cucumbers and green tomatoes and other things. Um, we've made sauerkraut, we've brewed kombucha, uh, so our guts have theoretically been a lot healthier. I don't know much about it, it's a bit of a mystery to me, the whole process, uh, but apparently my wife knows about it. Uh, so I look at it and I think, is it doing what it should? And I don't know. Um, is it ready yet? Who knows? Uh, is it supposed to taste like this? I don't know. Uh, is it going to kill us or is it going to make us healthier? That also is sometimes hard to know. Uh, it's been hard to say whether the promise of ferment, fermented goods is, has been realised for us, but at least there's been no harm done. Well, we Christians are sometimes a mystery to ourselves. Um, we're aware that there's supposed to be some sort of process taking place in us, which is going to make us better people. Um, but perhaps we look at ourselves and we think, where is that transformation? Or maybe we look at other Christians who've been Christians a long time and we get a bit surprised and we think, where is that transformation that's supposed to have taken place in you over the decades you've been a Christian? How is the process supposed to take place for us? And what are the results supposed to look like anyway of a life following Jesus? Perhaps we're a little bit troubled or unsure about this process, um, especially when we're reminded of our own sin, when we, when we fail again, when it feels like one step forward and two steps back as a Christian. Is it working? And what's it supposed to look like? And what's it supposed to feel like? How can I promote this process of transformation in myself? Am I doing it right? Am I missing something? Well, Christians have at times misunderstood how it is supposed to work and tried to add extra ingredients to, to make things happen, uh, to sort of supercharge this process of transformation. Uh, when Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians, the Christians were being told by false teachers that they needed to add the Jewish law to their Christian faith. The law has to be part of the process of your transformation, they were being told. And it was an easy argument to make, as it still is today. The law-free gospel, uh, which was taught by Paul, yes, it sounds nice, but it has no punch. It's got no discipline. It's got no sharp points to it. There's no power there to transform us. Uh, there's no 4 be 2 uh, you might say. Well, in our passage today, Paul insists that the gospel of pure grace without law has plenty of power to transform the beauty of God's grace cannot produce ugly results in a person's life. In fact, 
Paul is going to say it produces far better results than a life under the law. Um, we all know the story of the ugly duckling. Um, you know, the, the baby swan finds itself among the ducklings, following the mother duck around, but the little thing looks different, and all the other ducklings, they say, you're an awfully ugly duckling. Uh, but as it grows, it becomes evident that actually it's not ugly because it's not a duckling at all. It's, it's, it turns into a beautiful swan. That's the story. That's a little bit like the Galatian situation uh, that Paul is writing this letter into. These Gentiles in Galatia had become Christians, uh, but some Jewish fake Christians had come from Jerusalem and told them, you are very ugly ducklings. You don't make the grade as Christians. You need to take on the Jewish law and get fixed up. But Paul is saying, no, if you have the law-free gospel, then there is nothing wrong with you because actually you're not ducks at all. You're swans. And the, the gospel is going to grow you into something very beautiful that those ducklings who don't understand God's grace can never become. The law produces ducks, but the gospel produces swans. And the ducks just don't understand that at all. The beauty of God's grace cannot produce ugly results in a person's life. It can only produce beautiful results. But what does that process look like? That's our question. How do we make sure that the grace of God is having the right effect in our lives and we're turning into those swans? Well, I've reduced uh, Galatians 5, 13 to 26 into four how-tos. Not that I'm trying to give you a DIY on how to become a different person, uh, but really, this is how God transforms a person and how we are to cooperate with that process. So uh, the first how-to in this passage is verses 13 to 15, how to use your freedom. In chapter 3, we're told that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus took our curse and he replaced the law as our master. Jesus is now our master, not the law. So Paul has been urging these Christians, you are free, so don't go back under the law like these other people are telling you to do. But in chapter 5, verse 13, he tackles a different issue, because if we are free and Jesus has taken our curse, what reason do we have to stop sinning? Uh, perhaps this is what the bad guys in Galatia were saying. Uh, Paul's law-free gospel is a free ticket to sin, isn't it? There's no power for godliness there. Why would you stop sinning if you're just forgiven anyway? So Paul sort of pivots at this point in verse 13. He has been saying, don't lose your freedom. Now he starts saying, don't abuse your freedom. Gospel freedom is not a license to sin. And you won't take it as a license to sin if you really understand God's grace and gospel freedom. To be truly free is not just to be free from the law, it's also to be free from sin. Uh, so how we look to use our freedom shows whether we have actually have that freedom or not. Paul says in verse 13, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Paul's already said that the natural expression of Christian faith is love. So here he says the natural use of freedom for a true Christian is the voluntary slavery of loving your fellow Christians. The effect of God's grace on a true Christian is not to make us selfish. Oh great, I can do whatever I want now. Biting and devouring each other, according to verse 15. 
But the true effect of God's grace on a Christian is to make us love each other more. Verse 14. And ironically, that should make Christians better at keeping the main point of the law, which is to love your neighbour as yourself. Um, So Christians, theoretically, should therefore be better at keeping the law than people who are under the law, because we have this impetus in us to love, which is the whole point. Grace has done something to a true Christian's motivations. The mindset has changed. It used to be, what can I get away with? But if you know God's grace, and if you truly have God's freedom, the question is now, how can I serve Christ by loving others? The gospel changes our motivation. I hope you know something of that dynamic in yourself. But we all know that that change, that that change of motivations, is not instant and it's not, it's not total. Um, it's still hard not to be selfish, for, even for a Christian person. Um, the law of the jungle in this world is to bite and devour each other and to get what you can for yourself because no one else is going to look after you. Um, and so these choices that we have to make moment by moment, am I going to be selfish or am I going to love, am I going to live God's way or am I going to go my own way, they involve an inner battle, as we know. You know, you're confronted with this situation, how am I going to act here? And sometimes those battles are lost and we do the wrong thing, even if you're a follower of Jesus. Why is it so hard? Shouldn't it be easier to to be good, like at least part of us wants to be? Well, that's the first how-to, is how to use your freedom. The second how-to is how to understand your experience. So here is why it's such a struggle. We need to understand that the transformation of the Christian, it doesn't come sort of beamed down to us um, while we're sitting there watching TV one day. No, it comes through the battle. It comes through that, that struggle that we have within ourselves. We are still in the world, we still have the sinful nature, we still have the flesh. It's going to be a battle to live for God, and that's the way it's supposed to be. But I think Paul's point here is that at least if you're a Christian, you have the means to do good. You have the spirit. You have the only thing that has the power to resist your flesh, and that is the spirit of God inside you. For a non-Christian person, All they have is the flesh. They can't choose God. Even the good deeds uh, are an expression of the flesh. But a Christian person has the spirit. And so we can choose God because because of that. So Paul says in verse 16, So I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, if you have the spirit, the flesh can be denied. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Well, it means to live and to make your choices according to the Spirit's leading in the new reality of the Gospel. In particular, in this context, to walk by the Spirit means to choose to serve others in love. But of course, as we all know, we're not always attracted to doing that. Um, It's hard. Paul says in verse 17, The flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. So the Christian life is a frustrating life. Um, You probably know that as I do. We're torn. Part of me wants to do good. Part of me wants to be selfish. And so therefore, either way, whatever I choose, part of me is going to be frustrated because it doesn't get what it wanted. But Paul's point is that the spirit 
is our only real hope of resisting the flesh. He puts us in the fight, at least, because only the Spirit can intervene at the level of our desires. He says in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. In other words, I don't need the law to resist the flesh. The law can't change my heart. But in the Spirit, I can resist the flesh, though it's a battle and I don't win every time, because the Spirit is the presence of God himself dwelling in me and he can change my heart and my desires. Nothing else can indwell you and, and, uh, and dictate desires in the way that the Spirit can, or at least influence. Um, it is a wonderful gift to have the Spirit of God, therefore. There's nothing else that can liberate you from yourself in terms of your own behaviour. Uh, without him, we would have no hope whatsoever of resisting the flesh or of pleasing God. So this is how we should understand our experience as Christians. It's, it is supposed to be a struggle and it is going to be messy. While we're in this world, there will be the flesh to contend with. But we have the equipment to resist the flesh. We only need to learn how to use it um, to walk in step with the Spirit. It's tricky to learn how to use it. I'm teaching someone how to drive a manual car at the moment. Tricky to learn how to use the equipment you've been given sometimes. We have the Spirit of God and we need to learn how to use it. This should be the goal of our lives once we're saved. To learn how to walk in step with the Spirit and to do it better and better. And there should be tangible, observable results in our lives as we engage with this battle. So the third how-to is how to discern the results in verses 19 to 23. The beauty of God's grace through his son cannot produce ugly results in the life of a Christian. Paul contrasts the acts of the flesh with the fruit of the spirit here. So firstly, verse 19 and following, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. It's a sad list, it's an ugly list of human behaviour. It depicts people who are uh, seeking pleasure and fulfilment and significance and power and status in all the wrong ways, as people do. It's referring us to all those sort of spasms of selfishness and godlessness that our sinful natures produce, this list. And it's not exhaustive either. He says, and the like at the end to, to show this. He could keep going if he wanted to. Um, of course, the world makes grubby reality TV shows like Bachelor in Paradise in which everyone can watch the acts of the flesh amplified. Um, the flesh is glorified. The flesh is titillated by the world. Uh, but that shouldn't be for us. Verse 21, it says, I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, if this is the behaviour that defines you and that defines your desires, and if there is no fire in you to fight against these tendencies for Jesus' sake, then you are not in the kingdom of God and it shows that you don't have the spirit. However, on the other hand, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fact that Paul describes these things as the fruit of the Spirit teaches us a few things at least. 
I think. Um, firstly, it teaches us that this is a gradual process. Fruit doesn't emerge from a tree by fits and spurts. You kind of see it coming and it just grows. Um, so this is about a, a gradual development of character. Secondly, it's inevitable. Um, plants don't have an on-off button. You can't sort of turn on the fruiting with a switch and then turn it off if you've got enough fruit. Plants just, they just produce fruit because that's what they do. Even if they're really unhealthy, they're going to be trying to produce fruit. Um, you can't stop a Christian from, from producing this fruit. And thirdly, as Tim Keller says, th this growth is symmetrical. So this is not nine fruits of the spirit. Um, Half the Christian children books out, children's books out there are about the nine fruits of the Spirit. Actually, Paul says, it's not plural, it's singular. It's the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. So nine aspects of the one fruit. What a fruit. Um, so it's teaching that the fruit of the Spirit is a unity. You can't separate these things one from another, as if the Spirit, you know, is, is developing your gentleness one year and then your goodness the next. Um, you can't be strong on joy and weak in faithfulness and say, oh, the joys of the spirit, and he's got a bit more work to do on my faithfulness. No, this is basically describing the unity of Christ-like character, which is either growing as a whole or not. It's a package, a whole package, one fruit. He says at the end of verse 23, uh, against such things there is no law, meaning the law-free gospel does not make you an enemy of the law, quite the reverse, in fact. Against these things there's no law. So the point is that the Spirit's presence in a person's life will be discernible. You'll be able to notice it. The person will be in that battle of verses 16 to 18. And the result will be that they are growing to be more like Jesus. Can the law do that for you? Can the law produce this fruit? No, it can't. We need the Spirit of God. Um, so the Spirit is a very wonderful gift, you see. Um, some people might think, well, I, I never seem to win. I, I don't feel like I'm growing. All I see in my life are the acts of the flesh. Well, I would say to you, or firstly, I would ask you, how hard, how hard are you fighting? Um, how much do you care about being more like Jesus? I mean, it could be that you do care, and it's just a struggle. Uh, I would say that if you're in the fight, then you are probably growing more than you realise. Um, maybe you should ask somebody else whether they can see you growing to be more like Jesus. Maybe you should share some, your struggles with someone else and they can, they can help you. The point, the main thing is stay in the fight because this fruit is the main goal of the Christian life. Um, this is what we ought to be trying to achieve. I want to at attain the fruit of the Spirit. So uh, that's the third how-to is uh, how to discern the results and uh, the fourth, in verses 24 to 26, is how to see yourself in all of this. Um, we have this insecurity that says, oh, I'm not good enough yet. Maybe I'm not good enough to call myself a Christian. I need to sort of reach level four of the fruit of the Spirit before I'm a real Christian or something like that. But Christian morality is never a matter of making yourself into something that you haven't yet attained. That's not how Christians operate. Christian morality is a matter of being who you are. Who has Christ made me? Well, I need to live like that. In verses 24 and 25, uh, Paul states two facts that are already true of every Christian. Who am I? I am dead to the flesh. I've been crucified with Christ, in verse 24. And secondly, I am alive by the Spirit. 
I've been born again from above, and that is why I should keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, I am already a creation of God's grace, and that's why we shouldn't become conceited, provoking and envying each other as if we're trying to make ourselves into something. How you see yourself and who you believe yourself to be in Christ is the key to how you will live and grow as a Christian. So uh, we need to see ourselves according to the gospel. Who has Jesus made me by his grace? So this is the process by which Christian transformation takes place. Jesus hasn't just freed us from the penalty of sin by dying for us. He has also freed us from the power of sin by giving us his spirit, his active presence inside us. Jesus did not die for us so that we could then sin as much as we want. Jesus died for us to purchase us for God, and that's why he also gave us his Holy Spirit. I guess the question is, uh, how can these massive spiritual realities not change us profoundly? Um, the Son of God was crucified to, to free us from sin and the condemnation of the law. And the Spirit of God is inside us and he is pitting his desires against the desires of our flesh and changing us to be more like Jesus through this struggle that we feel. The result of that process has to be transformation. You can't be the same person uh, after receiving these gifts. How do we promote that process? By walking by the Spirit, by keeping in step with the Spirit. Now, keeping in step with the Spirit does not mean... Um, walking around and listening for a little voice in your head telling you what to do all the time. We're not given to expect that the Spirit will operate like that in the ordinary Christian life, anywhere in the Bible, beaming little messages in all the time. Uh, we shouldn't understand the influence of the Spirit as being separate from our relationship with the Father through the Son. And you can see that uh, from the references to the Spirit that we've already had in Galatians. Uh, for example, chapter 3, we come, to know, we, we come to know the Spirit when we trust in the Son who was crucified for us. Or in chapter 4, He is the Spirit of the Son. And so He connects us with God as our Abba Father. That's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is the active presence of God in us, connecting us to God's grace in Jesus and enabling a real personal knowing of God. So walking by the Spirit means nothing other than trusting in Christ's grace, trusting Jesus as our saviour and our pattern, and living our lives consciously in relationship with God as our Father. So that is what is going to influence our desires day by day. That is what, what's going to bear fruit. It's knowing God like this. It's, it's, it's knowing him through his grace in Christ. It's knowing him as our Abba Father and living in relationship with him. That is what's going to change you. That's what it means to walk in, uh, uh, in step with the Spirit. And the main thing I want to exhort you towards tonight is to trust that process. Knowing God like this will change you. How can it not change you? to walk in fellowship with God. Don't give up on this process and start ignoring God and his grace as if you didn't have the Spirit of God living in you. But keep in step with the Spirit. Get to know God and walk with God consciously and it will change you. If you're a Christian, then by his grace, you have been born again and you are now a swan. 
And by his grace, you will grow as a swan, not a duck. You don't have to fear looking like a duck. You just need to walk with God, walk by the Spirit, and you'll grow up to who he has made you to be. So uh, let's pray for this wonderful gift that we've been given. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us the gift of your Spirit, that Jesus didn't just die to free us from our sins, but you have also given us the power to live in relationship with you through our faith in him. Lord, we pray that you would bring forth in us the fruit of the Spirit. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to walk with you, to walk in step with the Spirit, and to get better and better at doing that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.